Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a repeat guest, Vijay Boyapati, except today we're going to be talking about healthcare instead of Bitcoin, although perhaps some of the underlying principles may surface. Vijay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. It's great to chat with you again. Let's, let's start from the top, Vijay. How did you get interested in healthcare in the first place? Well, I was interested in economics and studying economics in general. And back in 2010, I had a friend and she knew that I was studying Austrian economics, which is sort of a different school of economics to the standard schools of economics that are taught in universities, such as the Keynesian School of Economics and the Chicago School. And she said, hey, you know, we've got these standard perspectives on healthcare that we're being taught, would you be willing to come and give a a lecture to my class? And she she was in a public health class at the University of Washington. And I said, sure. So I, you know, applied my understanding of economics that I'd been learning about, Austrian economics, to healthcare. And I presented a lecture to the class, public health class. And it was fantastic. They had, they were really receptive, even though they're sort of economic and political views were quite different to mine. They were really receptive to the ideas and they had never heard anything like it before. And it gave me a chance to spend probably about a month doing a deep dive into the economics of healthcare and and why is the US healthcare system the way it is? What are the problems? And does it compare fa- favorably to other systems around the world? So yeah, that's that's how I first got interested back in 2010. And you wrote this post, what's really wrong with the healthcare system? That was a companion to the lecture. So I basically gave this, the post that I did as a lecture to to this class at the University of Washington. So let's present your thesis. What's wrong with the healthcare system? The biggest problem is that prices are rising much faster than the rate of inflation. A lot of people have brought up the issue that you know, a, a large fraction of GDP in the U.S. is being spent on healthcare. That's not a problem in and of itself. If that spending is commensurate with, you know, new uh, technologies and techniques that are being used that people want want to spend more money on. But unfortunately, in the in the U.S., it's not necessarily commensurate with better healthcare outcomes. And so, what I wanted to understand was. Why is it that in the U.S. prices are rising so quickly in the healthcare market? And there's a a whole number of reasons, some of them more significant than others. But I think from my research, perhaps the most significant reason is that the U.S. is based on this employer-provided health insurance system, which is, if you think about it, it's a really strange system to be insured for healthcare. We don't, our employers don't insure us for other things. They don't insure us for food or for a car or for TV, you know, for all these other things. But for some reason, they insure us for healthcare. And that, that got me interested in exploring what was the history of this? Why did, it, why did that come about? And it, it turns out it's a, it's a relic of uh, World War II. It goes all the way back to World War II when there were price controls. The US government instituted price control so you couldn't increase the prices on basic goods or services. So what happened was one one of the ways that employers who were still trying to, you know, attract employees, one of the ways they tried to differentiate themselves with other employers was to provide health insurance and say, look, we can't pay more than our competitors because of price controls, but we can give you health insurance. And and so they they started doing this. It was codified as a tax benefit that the, the U.S. government treated health insurance as a, a special class of service that wasn't taxed. And that got codified into the tax law in the early 50s after the war had ended. And it just sort of by accident became the healthcare system for the U.S. where you get health insurance through your employer and they 
they, they act as a middleman between you and the medical system, the, the doctors and nurses and hospitals that you deal with. And it has very interesting economic consequences to have this middleman. One of the things that happens is that patients are no longer negotiating directly with doctors. And so when, when they go to get a procedure done, the insurance pays, the insurance that was provided by their company. And if you're not paying something directly, your willingness to pay more rises dramatically. And, and a classic case of this is you, you can imagine if someone is traveling and if they're paying, they're going to be much more cost conscious about, you know, the hotel they stay in and, and the, the plane ticket they choose. They'll choose economy rather than business or first class. But if the company is play, paying, it, it becomes kind of a, a corporate junket where you say, well, I'm going to fly business class because I'm not paying and I'm going to stay at the Four Seasons because the company is paying. And of course, there's perhaps some pushback from from the company because they might question you about like well this trip seemed more expensive than we expected but generally you're going to be less cost conscious when you're spending your company's money than when you're spending your own so what this does is it it increases demand from consumers because they're not paying directly and it, it also makes it so consumers are less cost conscious. So if a doctor says, here are two options for your treatment, one is a certain cost and has a certain outcome. And there's another option, which is much, much higher cost, which we think perhaps has a slightly better outcome. If the patient's not paying, they're going to take the more expensive option. And, and this tends to create uh, healthcare that is more expensive because it's driving demand for the more expensive healthcare. So there is a bit of a feedback mechanism because companies have an incentive, they're profit motivated, and they have an incentive to push back on providers of healthcare and say, this seems really expensive and it's starting to cost us a lot, so we want to negotiate a better deal. But another thing that happened in the 60s was that the government provided Medicaid for elderly citizens. And in that case, the employer switched from being a company to being the government. And the government was providing uh, health insurance to everyone above 65. And the government doesn't have a profit motive like a, a corporation does. It doesn't go out of business in the same way. And the motives of the government are not so much economic, but political. And now you have all these people who are above 65 who are getting health care through the government and they're not paying directly. The government's paying for them. So the, these are people who vote and, and the government uh, has a huge incentive. People inside the government, congressmen and senators, have a huge incentive to say, we will drop the cost of health care for elderly citizens. And so elderly citizens can then demand more and more costly health care. And this tends to drive up the price of health care for everyone. So it's a combination of the employer-provided healthcare system and the government stepping in and, and providing insurance to a large fraction of the population, which I think is probably the primary cause of the growth of the cost of healthcare in the US, far above inflation uh, as compared to other countries around the world. And, and can you unpack one more time? Why is employer funded a problem if, if as you mentioned, you know, corporations are profit motivated? Because the the price sensitivity is much less when you're getting a good or a service through your company as opposed to getting it directly as an individual. If you're paying out of your pocketbook, again, I'll go to the example of uh, buying a plane ticket. If you're paying directly out of your pocketbook, you're going to be very cost conscious. You're going to look at all the different options and find the best possible ticket at the lowest possible price. Whereas when someone else is paying on your behalf, you're going to look for the most expensive option that gives you the absolute best treatment, even if the, the treatment is only marginally better than a much cheaper alternative. So it, it tends to create an incentive where healthcare providers will create options which are only you know, marginally better or perhaps are just the same and are, are marketed as being better and are far more, far more costly because they know that the customer isn't dealing with them directly. They're dealing with a company. 
And companies as well are, you know, hamstrung because there's a lot of privacy issues around healthcare. So if if one of their employee employees uh, requests a treatment which is very very expensive, but it's not clear that it's more effective from a you know a healthcare outcome, the company can't really step in and say, hey, this doesn't seem like a good idea. We want you to take the, the cheaper option because it's not clear that the the more expensive option has a, a better outcome. So because of those privacy issues and the fact that uh, consumers aren't paying directly, you have far less price sensitivity at the level of individuals choosing healthcare options. And what's the counter argument for, for the pro for employer? Isn't it that they can buy negotiate rates and buy bulk, et cetera? Or? Yeah, I guess you could say that companies can negotiate, but I, I just think that's a marginal effect compared to the demand side. I, I don't honestly, I don't have a strong arg- counter argument. I don't, I don't, I don't think there's good evidence that companies are, are negotiating really good fees from providers. And I, as an example, if you ever go and go to a healthcare provider and say, "Look, I don't have insurance." I would like to pay directly in cash. The, the numbers that you'll see are just absolutely stupendous for some of the treatments that, you know, you, you're not spending much time at the doctor's office. And in my article, I gave an example where I had a very, very small medical procedure, which took 15 minutes uh, removing a small cyst, a superficial cyst. And I remember going to a, a healthcare provider that typically took insured patients and they said it would cost $700 to, to do the procedure, 15 minute procedure, which is, you know, the equivalent of about $2,800 per hour for the procedure to be done. Then I found that another provider, which deals more with cash paying patients, people who don't have insurance. And these are people who, you know, are much more price sensitive and are not going to be willing to pay a large amount if their doctors give them you know, a, a, a direct bill, which is really high. And and the fee was much, much lower. I think it was maybe 50 or or $100. I mean, the procedure was, it was a no-risk procedure. So I'm very skeptical of the idea that companies are getting better deals with these insurance providers. I think there's a gigantic amount of bureaucracy involved and 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 they're not they're not negotiating at, at the level of an individual treatment. They're they're negotiating the level of these huge insurance packages. And I just don't think that's a an effective way of uh, negotiating a price on on a, a consumer good or service. Yeah, if if you look at the U.S. health system, it seems that everybody's got major problems with it. People who want it to be more free market system are saying, "Hey, this is nothing resembling a market," and yet people who want you know, universal healthcare or, you know, government funded healthcare are saying, hey, this is nothing resembling what government funded healthcare should look like. Yeah, it, it's true. It's, it's, a, it's a monstrous hybrid. And I think, you know, to argue the point that it's not a, a free market, I think one critical thing is there's really no price function. The, the most fundamental thing about a free market is there's a price function and that people can allocate resources based on the price of different things. If if the price of a certain good or service is going up, more people will allocate resources to it because it's profitable to do so. You know, a, a classic sign that there's no price function is just ask any patient, not even a patient, ask any doctor, what is the cost of this procedure? And they cannot tell you. Ask a doctor delivering a baby, how much does this cost? Doctors have no idea. They are providing a service and they don't know how much is being charged for the service they're providing. That That's just not true in any other industry. And that's a, that's a huge problem because you no longer have a price function which connects the consumer and the producer anymore. So the allocation of resources gets really sort of messed up. So I, I don't see evidence of this being a free market at all. It's a, it's a, a really horrible uh, hybrid system. But I, I think it's better than a single payer system, but uh, it also has the problem that costs are constantly going up. The, the, the problem with a single payer system is that the costs are 
kind of hidden. When you have a, when you have a single payer system, you also don't have a price function. You have the government allocating resources directly and saying we need this many doctors for this profession and this many doctors who are anesthesiologists. The real problem with that is the it, it's impossible to allocate resources rationally when you don't have a price function. This is um one of the the great insights of the Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises. He predicted that socialism would fail in the 1920s before, you know, the the horrible communist experiment of the 20th century. And, And the reason he predicted this was because communist countries don't have price functions. They don't have the ability to rationally allocate resources because they don't know what the demand for these resources are. They're just kind of guessing. And when governments do this, they're, they're essentially rationing resources in one area and over-allocating in another area. And the problem with that is it, people people don't really see that the consequences of this directly. It's kind of an unseen cost. What it means is that someone who wants a procedure, let's say they need a hip replacement or some, something of that nature, they may think the procedure is free because the government is providing it in a single-payer system, but they have to wait. They have to wait potentially years to get the procedure done, and the cost is that wait. And for some people, the cost is is life or death. Waiting means death. And there's no way that they can say, hey, this is really important. I need to get this done immediately because the government has allocated resources to the, the particular subfield. And governments move really slowly they it's it's not like they can see an uptick in demand for hip procedures and say we need to respond to this immediately that's how the markets function and so the the cost in these single payer systems is seen in treatments just not being available whereas the cost in the american system is seen by things just being really expensive if you don't have insurance so they they both have huge problems but i i would prefer a system that is expensive, but you can get a treatment versus something that is free and you potentially wait for years. But what about people who point to, I don't even know which countries are some of our, is it United Kingdom or Canada or Israel and say, hey, look at how successful, is, is there an example of a single pair system in your mind globally that is, is very successful? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I think that the UK and Canadian systems are a huge disaster and, and there, are, there are plenty of stories of people dealing with catastrophic failures of those systems because of the way they're managed by the government. And I, I think, you know, a good sign of the failure of the Canadian system is you just look at the direction people cross the border. Do people cross northwards to get healthcare treatment or they cross southwards and this is this is generally true of political systems as well you know the the chinese communist system versus the free market hong kong system which way did people cross the border did they did the people from hong kong leave and and flee to china or was it the other way around and when you look at this it's canadians leaving because they can't get treatment they can't they don't want to wait so they come to the u.s and they pay and they get they get you know, relatively good treatment. I I don't buy into this. I think this is sort of an ideological point where people say that these places have good treatment because they're, you know, quote, free. But there's there's no such thing uh, as a free lunch. You, you, You don't get free healthcare. The cost is the time that you wait and the quality of the treatment. And in terms of those things, despite its problems, the US still has the best, one of the best healthcare systems in the world. If you could wave a wand and change anything that would make the U.S. healthcare system more market-oriented, what would that be? Well, I think it's really hard to change the system because there are so many entrenched interests who will lobby very strongly to keep it as it is, especially the health insurance providers like the system the way it is. They make a lot of money off it. You know, I think the one thing that I think would help increase price sensitivity would be to just increase deductibles. So make people pay more out of pocket for treatments. It's just the the idea actually of insurance is, is very strange. Insurance is meant to be for unexpected catastrophic type events in a person's life. It's not meant to be for routine treatment. So much of healthcare is, you know, routine stuff. 
and it, it's just strange that we pay pay it through insurance. We should be paying it directly. But the way I think it would work if it was an effective system is you'd go to the doctor and say, I would like my routine checkup. Here's $150. And uh, there are actually little pockets of the healthcare market where this happens. And, and you can see from these pockets, little microcosms of, of a free market, how effective the free market can be. In my article, I talk about LASIK eye surgery is an example where it's typically not insured, so people have to pay out of pocket. And over the last 15 to 20 years, there's been a dramatic decrease in the cost of getting one of these procedures there far more efficient at doing doing them and the quality of the outcomes is much much higher and this is the kind of thing you expect from a free market such as you know the technology sector this is the kind of thing you expect prices dropping and quality going up you know every year the quality of the iphone goes up that's what you expect but for some reason it's not true of healthcare except in the instances where consumers are paying directly and where there's very high price sensitivity and, and, and consumers become very discriminating. It, it, it provides a very strong incentive for producers of healthcare to improve their game. Isn't there an argument that if people are paying out of pocket, they would likely pay less for preventive care? And that's the, one of the big problems with our system is that people don't spend enough in preventive health care? Yeah, but, uh, I, th- I think that's more of an educational issue. And I, I think people, if, if they're educated about what's necessary to live a long and healthy life, they will know that preventative care is important. And I, I, I don't see that as necessarily an economic issue, but more of an educational one. And people not being fully aware that they need to get their regular checkup, especially after they get past 40 or 50 in age, it, it becomes much more important. Totally. What, what do you think about, like, what are the, would you say the best criticisms of free market healthcare or what makes healthcare sort of uniquely challenging to incorporate markets? I think it, the idea is that we humans have natural empathy and the idea that people could be left in a dire situation because of a physical ailment or disease that they get that is no choice of their own. The natural empathy of a population sort of makes it hard for us to, as a society, countenance allowing people to just die. That's the outcome that I think proponents of socialist healthcare really lean on. But I I think the problem is if you want better healthcare for everyone, you need to have the innovation and capital formation that you see in other other fields that are, that are free markets. You, you don't solve the problem by I- introducing government planning into, into the situation. And you, it, you really have to think about this, this confusion between healthcare and health insurance. Unfortunately, in our society, the two terms have become synonymous. But really what you want is better health care outcomes. You want more and better doctors who are trained, more and better treatments, medical treatments, better technology. And for those things to exist, you need the free market to work. If you take a society that is impoverished and institute health insurance, it doesn't mean that they're going to suddenly have good health care outcomes. The health care comes from the development of medicine, uh, and that takes time and capital formation and innovation and it seems so simple to say, let's just give free healthcare to everyone. But in the long run, the effect is actually very negative because it hampers the growth of the, the healthcare market. What, what healthcare systems globally outside the US can we learn from and what is it from them that we can learn? I, I think we could, we could probably take a look at the Singapore healthcare system. I think it's probably, I think it's rated the, the best in the world. And, and they are, a, a very free market oriented society, but they also don't want anyone to be without healthcare. So they've sort of thought about it in in, in a different way. And and so they, they do have a social safety net, but it's just not implemented in a really ineffective way that it's done in the US. So if the government is going to be involved, and I, I think it, given the, the nature of our society, it's very difficult to imagine that it's not going to be involved. It should at least look at systems that have worked effectively. And uh, I, I would point Singapore as an example of that. And so 
what is it that what is the government proper government role in healthcare? Well, my point of view as a libertarian is the government should have no role whatsoever in healthcare. I think uh, the, the, the quality of treatment would be much, much higher if the government stepped out of healthcare. And in the cases where you have people who do not have the ability to pay for their own healthcare and, and are suffering an unexpected healthcare outcome, it, it, it should really be up to private charities and private foundations to help them, not the government. And I And that's generally how it worked before the healthcare system we had was created in the 1950s. If someone in a community uh, needed medical help and they couldn't afford it, the local church would help them out. I I just think that's a a much more moral system than forcing everyone to pay into this large corporate bureaucratic, uh, bureaucratic and ineffective system. And one of the things I, I talked about when I lectured this class public health care class was the morality of government health care and that's something that they hadn't really thought about and I made the point that w- when the government creates legislation in any field it requires the force of the government to enforce it and what you're saying is if someone doesn't want to be part of this health care system that they think is ineffective the ultimate outcome is jail you're willing to throw someone in jail because they don't want to be part of a system that they think is immoral and in, in and ineffective so that's my point of view i don't think government should be involved but if it is going to be involved uh, involved it should uh, take a, a much more free market based approach and it, it should look to countries which have done that and i think those countries in general have been have provided healthcare in a much more effective way than ones which have used single payer systems yeah, I think Singapore only four percent of their GDP is spent on healthcare with uh, yeah. better outcomes. Yep. So, if uh, you mentioned perhaps you know the entrenched interests, so it's sort of politically infeasible to imagine sort of a world like this. And yet, so two questions: one, you gave this talk almost a decade ago, you know, two thousand ten to eleven. Has anything changed since then? And then, sort of looking forward, if you look out ten years out, fifteen years out, like. Do you think expect any big changes to our healthcare system, and and what would have what would have to happen for for a big change to ha- occur? Unfortunately, I don't expect any changes. As I said, I think the interests are far too entrenched and far too powerful to change anything, and um, the the political base is also you know, so vested in the current system. With Medicaid, you have a, a a large block of baby boomers who are basically got free insurance from the government and they're not going to give it up <laughs> so it's going to it's going to take a, a bankruptcy of the the federal government to, for for a significant change i mean you can you can make changes around the margin and one example was something trump was trying to do which i think was actually a good idea which is make it so that healthcare providers have to uh, compete with each other across state borders instead of only having competition within the state borders. I should be able to get insurance from a New Jersey provider if they have better insurance than the ones in, in Washington where I live. So that's that's kind of an obvious idea. You, you could in, encourage health savings accounts, which provide people with some money where they, they're able to pay for healthcare services. But that only really helps if you're also making it so that the, the services themselves uh, come uh, need to be paid more out of pocket, and, and so potentially one one way of doing this. Since since I don't think you can really change healthcare for people who are above sixty, is you you could make it so that the the de- deductible for young people is much higher, so they have to pay more out of pocket, and sort of phase out the old system in stages. That might be a politically feasible way of doing it, but it, but even that really, it, it's such a hot potato. No one no one wants to change the way it is because you imagine you're a politician and you say, "Hey, I want to remove all of this free stuff." It's not going to go down well. The, the political incentives are aligned to create people who will expand the current system rather than reduce it. It's almost as if we have a higher chance of like achieving the singularity or having nuclear war or AIs take over the world before, before we have like a massive healthcare shift. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, unfortunate. That's, that's one of the downsides of democracy is I think Milton Friedman said, there's nothing so permanent as a temporary welfare program. And, and that's really what happens that when you create a welfare program, it creates an interest group who are very, very motivated 
and, and in general, the rest of the population doesn't have a strong opinion. And, and so that motivated group will, will, will drive the system to expand and, and they will be a very motive, uh, motivated voter base to keep the system in place. Do you think there are any parallels between your interest in, in, in Bitcoin or in the underlying principles underlying Bitcoin and healthcare? I guess you could say decentralization. I mean, free markets are about decentralization and kind of the antithesis of central planning. And, and I, I, I guess I could say there's a similarity there. I, I, I believe in market outcomes and markets as a way to allocate resources and, and create innovation and new technology and wealth for, you know, the great majority of people in society, as opposed to governments centrally planning and deciding how the economy should be managed. And, you know, I think if the 20th century proved anything at all, it's that central planning is a disaster on a massive scale and it needs to be avoided wherever possible. Any areas where you think there should be central planning slash what is the proper role of government outside of health, just role of government in general? Well, you know, there's a spectrum of libertarians and I'm, I'm pretty far along the spectrum. I, I would say that ideally everything should be provided by the market. If the government is going to provide anything at all, it should be defense against external threats and the provision of justice inside the society. So, you know, prosecuting crimes and preventing crimes and providing peace and order. So... I guess you'd say a, a military and a, a police function is the only conceivable role that is, I think, appropriate, if, if that's appropriate at all. How, how would the Austrians view Trump today? I think it varies. I think, you know, that there is a spectrum of libertarians and some are very uh, left-leaning and some are uh, much more right-leaning. And, you know, I, I think some libertarians are absolutely appalled about yeah. Trump. Uh, from an economic perspective. From an economic perspective, you know, I think the libertarian perspective would be, you know, against the sort of mercantilist policy that he's pursuing of, you know, trade wars with other countries. The libertarian perspective is that the U.S. should open its market market regardless of what other countries do. But then I think a lot of libertarians would be supportive of his tax reduction policy that he passed, I think it was a few months ago. So, yeah, I think it's a mixed bag. I don't, I don't think there's one definitive perspective on Trump. Some, I think libertarians would be happy with some things and upset about other things. Yeah, you also mentioned in your piece three other things that led to rising prices. One is occupational licensing, two is obesity, and three is IP. Can you sort of walk, walk through each one? Sure. So, so the biggest one I, I mentioned was employer-provided health uh, insurance. But the next one I mentioned was licensure, which is... Basically, credentializing a profession and saying that you're only allowed to practice in this profession if you get a credential from an authority. Uh, in, in the medical profession, it's the American Medical Association, which decides uh, who can practice as a doctor or not. And while the idea sounds good, uh, you know, it's you know preventing poor quality doctors practicing, it actually turns out to to be a way of restricting supply in the market. And it also, it affects who and and how uh, medicine can be provided. And Milton Friedman had uh, a quote about this that I quoted in my article. And I actually, I have it, I have it here, which, and I think it's, it's worth reading. He said, it is clear that licensure is the key to the medical profession's ability to restrict the number of physicians who practice medicine. It is also the key to its ability to restrict technological and organizational changes in the way medicine is conducted. And I gave an example in my article where I, I pointed out that there were some local cost clinics uh, like at Walmart, which had nurse practitioners who were providing flu shots. And the AMA came in and, and shut them down. They, they said, well, you're not allowed to do this unless you have a, a, a licensed doctor on the premises. As an example of a healthcare service that could be provided at very low cost, but now has to become much more expensive because doctors are more expensive than nurse practitioners. So the AMA not only restricts the supply of people who can become doctors, but the way in which healthcare is provided by people who are not quite as qualified. 
And so that, that tends to in, increase the cost of low-cost services as well. Are you familiar with the, the cost to Z argument that basically says that one of the reasons prices might be rising in healthcare is, even, is because they're decreasing in other industries, which thus is pushing wages up in, in healthcare, which is not as productive of an industry? I don't buy it. I don't, I, I, don't, I don't think that's true because I think healthcare can be as innovative and productive as any industry. It's just hampered by the regulations that surround it. And, you know, if you're a startup person, you, you'll know this. You, I, I was in Y Combinator and one of the things I remember vividly is of all the batches that had been there before me, there was almost no healthcare startups. The, the amount of red tape that you have to cut through to to do anything in healthcare is just ginormous. So there's, there's far less innovation in that market, but it's because of regulation. It, it's not it's not because it's inherently a less uh, innovative or productive industry. There are so many things you could do in healthcare if you, you had less regulation. And, and give more color into the who are these entrenched interests exactly, and what regulations are could be changed in theory that would not give them either monopoly or, or undue, undue power? Is it insurance companies? Is it, who are these entrenched interests? Yeah, I think the insurance companies are probably the big ones. Um, and the AMA, of course, is, you know, these licensure organizations are the other ones as well who, who restrict supply. Yeah, and, and the other big problem is that the government regulates the amount of information that can flow around in the market. There are very, very strict privacy regulations uh, around healthcare, which just makes it very hard to move information. Even companies as big as Google and Microsoft have tried to get in and and build uh, software that would allow people to take their health records from one, you know, hospital to another or one doctor to another and they abandoned the efforts because it was just far too complex to navigate the regulation and so you you can see this when you go i don't know if you've ever gone to get a flu shot at the clinic if, if, if you haven't been there you have to they give you this form that you have to fill out this paper form this antiquated paper form like from the 19th century that they they keep on file somewhere and it's just really ridiculous. They should, you should have an account which has your medical history that should stay with you and should be able to move between providers. But we, we don't have that. The patients don't have the ability to do that. And, and it's not because that's a difficult thing to do. Uh, you understand this is the, the technology to do that's very simple. But the, the, the kind of things that you have to, to do, to com- the kind of regulations you have to comply to to do it means that no one wants to actually build it because the cost of doing it is is much higher than benefit of doing it. And did Obamacare only make things worse? And in my opinion, it did. I think the biggest problem was that it really, you know, extended, tried to extend the benefits and decrease the deductibles for people. So it actually decreased people's price sensitivity. And I think what you see is that healthcare premiums went through the roof and just the cost of healthcare in general increased a lot after after Obama's legislation was passed, and I think it's one of those situations where the people and the companies paying for healthcare it, it got almost to a, a point of crisis, and I think that's why Trump tried to fix the system. And as far as I can tell, I haven't I haven't really investigated this in as much detail as I did in 2010. I I, I think he was quite ineffective in 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 trying to to remove regulation and uh, reform the system. You know, I, I'm a bit of a pessimist. I think that we, we're going to have to wait to a, until we have a, a huge financial crisis when it just becomes clear that there's no way to pay pay for such a, a system uh, and the whole thing collapses on itself before we get something better. Do you foresee a big financial crisis in the next decade around this? I mean, it... You know, I, I think the biggest financial crisis isn't going to hit the U.S. first. I think it'll hit other countries first. In in terms of its debt-to-income ratio, the, the U.S. is in a fairly good position. I mean, it's I'm not going to say it's excellent, but countries like Japan and, and parts of Europe are in much, much worse worse shape than the U.S. I mean, Japan, for instance, is... is using all of it, the income it receives from taxation to pay interest on its debt. 
which is a very, very precarious position to be in. If the interest rates spike in Japan, then they can no longer pay their debt and they potentially have to default. The US is still able to service its debt and I expect will be for quite a while. I don't know when this crisis will happen, but you know we're certainly on the path to it. Whether it happens in 10 years or 20 years or you know, 50 years, it, it, that's not completely clear to me. But unless you have significant reform, it will eventually happen because we can't afford a system where the cost of healthcare continues to increase indefinitely. Zooming out a little bit, what is the Austrian view on sort of the, you know, or on frameworks for how to think about, you know, a deficit or debt and, and whether something's manageable or not, or, or what should be ideal? Well, I think Murray Rothbard wrote an article which was that the government shouldn't be carrying any debt and it would be better if the government just defaulted on its debt and if it didn't have any debt, then it wouldn't need any taxation either. So the Austrian view is that we have far more debt than we need. If you're just talking about whether or not it's sustainable or not for for the people who don't have that same moral opinion, you need to look at whether tax revenues are, are funding the interest payments on the debt. And if you have a lot of leeway there, then you know the country is probably going to be able to continue with the system that it has for a long time. And the US does still have a, a lot of leeway despite the, the massive debt that it has. The, the US brings in a lot of tax revenue, which, uh, much more than uh, it needs to pay out in interest every year. And that's, that's also partly because foreign nations' willingness to, to fund US debt, which means that we have much lower interest rates. And so, so we're in this kind of lucky position that we can sell, sell our debt at very uh, generous terms. And, and so we don't have to pay that much interest to, to continue to service it. Totally. I mean, you mentioned earlier the sort of problem with democracy, and is some. I wouldn't. I, I don't know if you'd go so far as to say that capitalism and democracy are incompatible. But what is your sort of ideal, you know, government or political system, or if you could change anything about our existing system with the way we want, what would it be? I. I mean, I prefer a totally free society where individuals interact with each other peacefully and without coercion, and and so some call that an anarchist system, but. It's highly unlikely. It's kind of an ideal that I, I think people should strive for and advocate for. But in terms of systems that have existed, I think an ideal would be much more of a sort of city-state system, kind of like the, the, the system that existed in the Renaissance in Italy. We have a bunch of really small city-states, and they're competing for the best talent, the best minds to to live in their city. And so you you... You have cities providing the best service possible and providing patronage to the greatest talents that are alive at the time. And so, you know, I think it would be great if the world was a bunch of much, much smaller countries. And that's sort of, you could think of that as sort of the way the founders envisaged the creation of the United States. Each of the states was their own political system that had most of the power and the federal government was to have very little power. But over time, uh, much of the power has been arrogated into the federal government. And so that, that view of like essentially a whole collection of small nation states with a very small super state that sort of sat on top of them has, has morphed into this monstrous federal system where where there's a massive amount of power concentrated in Washington DC but ideally I, I, I you know imagine America as a bunch of city-state countries I think that would be by far the best provide the best outcomes for the people each each city would cater to the demands of its own population and wouldn't be subject to the whims of politicians a thousand miles away who have no idea what's important in Seattle for instance and what led to that consolidation, or was it merely inevitable? I think it's inevitable. I think power consolidates, and if you create a central government, it's going to it's going to arrogate power to itself over time. It's just the nature of politicians and and politics in general. When you create an institution which has authority over a, a large group of people, it's going to try and increase that authority. Is the EU closer to what you have in mind, or or no? It's interesting. The the EU 
they're, they're trying to mo model the American system, but the countries, the nations themselves are, are far more sovereign and they don't want to give up their power. So in a way, you could say it's closer to what the early founders had, had envisaged with the United States. But it, they kind of, it seems that they want to mimic what the U.S. is right now. It's just very difficult for them because the individual countries don't want to be part of it. They don't want to. They don't want to cede their sovereignty to Brussels. In those city states, should they be run democratically, or is democracy the right format? Or is it, or, or, and if not, why not? No, I mean, if you look at the Renaissance, um, which is, I think, one of the periods of the greatest flourishing of human civilization in all of history. They, they weren't run by democracies. They were run by essentially CEOs, like, you know, monarchs. And, and Singapore is another example of a country which is essentially run in a monarchistic way. And to me, I, this seems relatively obvious. If you've worked at a company, great products, great technology, they're not built by committees. They're built by visionaries and people with executive leadership and, and, and the ability to lead teams. And, and I think, you know, the idea of uh, a monarch seems kind of scary to the modern ear because of the idea of a centralized authority in a single person. It sounds kind of like a dictatorship. But when you have very small monarchies, that have to compete with each other, they're kind of checked, their power is checked by the fact that if anyone is unsatisfied with the way their monarch is running their, their small city, they, they can just leave and go to the next one across. And so that creates a, a strong incentive for the rulers to, to provide good services and provide a, a society that will, will attract the best from around the world. Totally. Are, where do you depart, if at all, from, from your friend Patrick Friedman and his view of competitive governance? Just, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm very sympathetic to his views. Patrick is one of the sort of leading figures or founding fathers of the seasteading movement, which is the idea that you should have experiment, experimentation in, in governance and that the best way to do that is to to create a bunch of small states which run their government in the, the best way that they see fit and have them compete with each other. It sort of seems to me that he's trying to recreate the model of the re Renaissance in a modern society out in the ocean uh, where you have these little floating islands where people can go and create their own own systems of governance that they think are appropriate and, and effective. It, what are some prominent sort of Austrian or libertarian arguments or tenets that you that you disagree with? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I don't. I, I consider myself an Austrian economist. There are some economic areas where I've disagreed with prominent Austrians, and you know, they're related to monetary theory. So, for instance, I, I think some very prominent Austrians did not understand how Bitcoin could be possible, and they were enamored of the idea that money must originate as a physical commodity like gold. And so they ruled out Bitcoin as ever being money. And and so I think they made a huge mistake uh, in terms of interpreting the regression theorem, which is a theorem of Austrian economics, which tries to describe how money gets its value today and how, how do you trace that back into the past. And, and the other area, I guess, that I disagreed with some Austrians on was back in 2008, or in, in the Great Recession, um, the Federal Reserve increased its balance sheet by several trillion dollars. And a lot of Austrians thought that this would cause rampant inflation or hyperinflation in the US. And I I strongly disagreed with that. And I, I also read a very long article explaining why I thought those views were mistaken. But those are not differences of philosophy or morality. There's sort of economic disagreements. If you Speaking of economic disagreements, if you talk to someone like Tyler Cowen, uh, an economist, he'll say that, in his opinion, the Fed has actually done a pretty good job being you know, consistently at you think it's been two percent for, for quite some time. What do him or other sort of conservative, but maybe not libertarian or Austrian economists, not see? Or, or where do you guys fundamentally disagree? Well, I would ask, like, how does he know that 
the Fed has done a good job. I mean, it's not like we can see the counterfactual. We can't see the world in which the Fed does not exist. Perhaps that world is a lot better. The, the 19th century saw the greatest increase in the, the lot of the average man that has taken place ever in history. And, and that was a period in the United States where, for instance, life expectancy increased dramatically in the 19th century. And that was a period where there wasn't really a central bank at all. So, you know, the counterfactual world that, that he's ignoring could could be much better. Maybe maybe now the average life expectancy, if we hadn't had a central bank, would be 150. So it's not clear to me that you can just look at the way the, the world is now and, and, and look at a superficial metric like the inflation rate and say, yes, they, they've kept inflation close to 2% and that's a good thing. Well, what about the financial crisis? They, I think they did a, a terrible job managing that. They didn't see it coming. And, and when it came, their response was even worse. They, instead of letting some of these banks be liquidated who had made these awful loans, really poor judgment on the part of the banks in loaning to people who had no ability to service their debt. Instead of letting those companies be liquidated in the way they would be in any other market, they saved them. And really the problem with that is it, it prevents the reallocation of that capital. All of those people who are you know, working in those industries are kept in those industries when they potentially should be doing something else. Maybe they should be working on Bitcoin or maybe they should be working on healthcare. But instead, because of the, the government stepped in and, and provided a, a, a massive amount of liquidity to to these failed banks, you still have a financial sector which is a much larger fraction of GDP than it otherwise would be. So is it a good outcome? It's not, it's not obvious to me at all. And I, I think he would have to address or at least think about what the world might look like without an institution like the Federal Reserve. Is the, is the Austrian view of sort of the, uh, the state of nature closer to Hobbes, you know, wor- world where it's sort of People are naturally not good at to uh, summarize or generalize wildly or closer to Rousseau's noble savage theory of, of the natural state of human affairs. I, I think the, the libertarian view is that humans are neither you know, beasts or angels and, and that either way, if you assume that uh, humans are angels or you assume that they're beasts, it, we are better off with a more market-driven society. If humans are, in fact, angels, then why do we need the government? <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense because, you know, in the case that people need to be taken care of, we are we are good-natured enough and, and charitable in, in our natural inclinations to help those who are less fortunate than us. And if humans are beasts and inherently evil, then we're giving those people who are evil this incredibly powerful weapon, which is the, the nation state, with which they can do massive damage to society and, and the rest of the world. And, and the, the nation state and the political system attracts the worst kind of evil people. So and that is people who desire power over other humans. And so in either case, I, I, the libertarian would argue that we're, we're better off with a freer society. Why aren't there more libertarians or Austrians or really any in, in government or political power or just more? I, I know it used to be mainstream, but why, why, why is it not more mainstream now in, in our power system, whether it's you know, CEOs of, of you know, some of the biggest companies in the world or in our you know, government and political system? It's a hard idea to wrap your head around. I, you know, I, I think it's easy to think about someone taking care of all the problems that you don't have control over. It's just a natural inclination. Why have humans believed in religion for all of history? It's just easier for us to, to fill in the blank with an authority, I think. It, it takes time and effort, so... To become a libertarian took me many, many years of, you know, intense thought and questioning my own beliefs. And I, I left Australia as a very liberal person uh, who had steeped in left-wing ideas from an Australian university. And, and it was only, you know, maybe a decade of questioning those ideas that I came to be a libertarian. And not everyone is interested in, in doing that, questioning their political ideas. Most people, I believe, absorb their political ideas by osmosis from the people around them. They don't have the inclination all the time, which is fair enough, to, to think about these things in detail. They just want to, to live their lives and they assume that the status quo is legitimate and they just go with it. 
And that's why, unfortunately, some of the most evil systems, uh, evil political systems that have existed on Earth uh, didn't have as much pushback as you would have hoped. People just go with the flow. They go with what is currently, you know, in place. If magically out of the air, you were given a pool of money, perhaps like $100 million, and all you could do with that money was try to spread or popularize libertarian and Austrian ideals, what would you do with the money? What do you think would be the most effective use? That's a great question. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I might try to fund an institute like the uh, Foundation for Economic Education or the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute, I think is another a, a great institute providing education about Bitcoin, which I think is, Bitcoin is a, a an innovation which allows us to have a, a free market monetary system outside of the realm of our current system and it, it may be the case that we can't reform our current system because the the interests are too entrenched and and so the only way that we can t- solve the problem for those of us who believe in a freer society is to go around the system and build something that that can't be co-opted so funding that kind of thing i think might be the best use of that money cool any any last things you want to cover Maybe I should say a couple of words about the two other major things in the article. Um, yeah, please. So, so one of the things I brought up in the article was obesity is one of the biggest problems in terms of the cost of uh, U.S. healthcare system, and you know some people will point this out as a market failure. People are just eating way too much, and the co- the cost of goods is is too low, and um, the market is providing all these awful foods that are to, that are exacerbating the obesity epidemic in in America but the, the truth is that the obesity epidemic only really began in the 70s and it began right after the the farm bill was introduced in in the early 70s uh, by Nixon and it provided huge subsidies to grain producers so what you had was a massive surplus of grain being produced in the U.S., um, corn and wheat. And, and, and so the producers of this grain uh, looked for ways of selling the excess. And one of the things they did was turn corn into sweeteners. And so now in the U.S., uh, high fr- fructose corn syrup is pervasive in it's everywhere. It's in all sorts of goods, all sorts of foods that you wouldn't expect it to be. And this has had a, a huge impact uh, on the obesity epidemic because what you'll find is the unhealthiest foods, the ones which have got subsidized high fr- fructose corn syrup, are much cheaper than healthy foods that you that you would expect people who are healthy would eat, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables and that sort of thing. So the farm bill uh, tilted the economics of food production towards the unhealthiest foods. Uh, and so this is an example not of the free market gone awry, but of government intervening and providing subsidies and, and having huge negative unintended consequences. And the, the last thing I talked about in my article was intellectual property uh, and how this affects the cost of healthcare. And the example I gave was uh, essentially in, intellectual property grants a monopoly on an idea and what happens is with intellectual property is that people will do some research and they'll get a patent on it and then they can they can charge monopoly prices on on the goods or services that they they're providing and, and an example of this was an HIV treatment which when when the monopoly ended when it when uh, other companies were allowed to provide generic versions of that drug the cost went the treatment went from like $750 down to about $10 so intellectual property is another huge problem for the healthcare market because a, a lot of these drug man- manufacturers get long-term patents on on the treatments that they've created and the argument against that of course is that there would be no drugs created if they if we didn't have patents but there's very good evidence that that's not true and that you would still have people creating uh, new technologies and treatments without patents and it's, it's it you can see that in in the world of software it's, it's much harder to get a patent on software or a software idea 
and yet we still have tremendous innovation. There's still uh, a, a great benefit to, to building something innovative and, and selling it to the public. Uh, and there's two, two great books that I cite in my article about the possibility of a market that doesn't, isn't built on intellectual property. Totally. Cool. One last question for you. Yeah. Why isn't Milton Friedman a libertarian or Austrian? I think he he just grew up in a different educational system. He wasn't exposed to. I think it's a, sort of a historical quirk. The, the The Austrian school developed in Vienna, and uh, Milton Friedman was going through school, not really aware, I think, of any of the the work that had been done over in in Vienna, and he became aware of it after some of these Austrians had fled uh, Europe to come to America and then he crossed path, paths with Ludwig von Mises and, and Friedrich Hayek, more notably with Hayek at the University of Chicago. And he just he, he wasn't familiar with that school of thought, I don't think. And and the school of thought that he sort of grew up with was very antagonistic to the ideas that the Austrians had. So I think it's kind of a quirk of of history and of time and place that he uh, wasn't exposed to Austrian ideas earlier in his career. Cool. Well, well Vijay, thank you so much for, for coming to the podcast. Where can people learn more about you online or, or what should they stay tuned for? Publish some of my thoughts on Twitter. So real underscore Vijay at Twitter. And you can find some of the articles I've written there linked from there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Vijay. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 